what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Yes, Pat. I can't help but notice you have a new puppy out there. I do have a new puppy. Have you thought about getting some expert advice on how to raise that puppy? Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it just happens that we do have an expert as part of our sponsor group. Really? Yeah, Dan Croft Canine. Do they run puppy class? They run amazing puppy classes. What what on earth do they do there? They've got whole ranges of foundation for puppy school. So they're running a complete socialization package and they're doing a whole range of different levels for puppies. And that's what they really wanted to emphasize is that they are experts in puppy raising and training. Where are they experts in puppy raising and training? In Toronto, Canada. Whoa. So if you were in Toronto, Canada, and you had a friend, a client, a relative, just anybody who was getting a puppy Mm -hmm. and you wanted to set that puppy up for success, you could probably send them to Dancroft, can I? If I was over in Toronto, Canada with my new little Rottweiler puppy, Mando, I would go over, and I'm, I swear this, I would go over and I would do the socialization program with them. Great I idea. love what they're doing. Have you seen this set up online? Oh, amazing. Fantastic. Amazing. They had a tire with a medicine ball with the pit bull doing a drop stay on top of it. My goodness. Amongst a dozen other dogs that were doing all similar things, like on BOSU balls and all sorts of things. My goodness. It was great. Fantastic. Unbelievable. Yeah. Hey, speaking of your puppy, mm-hmm. what's going on with his nutrition? Couldn't go past canine tuticles. Supplemented up. Supplemented up to the help. My goodness. Yeah. So he should have arms like Arnold Schwarzenegger by the time we're finished. Where did you get those canineceuticals from? From Narelle Cook. Narelle Cook. Yeah. How, do you, how do you know her? <laughs> <laughs> Funny that she's got the same last name as me. Yeah. The supplier is very local. Absolutely. Canineceuticals, but ha- legit, it's probably the best supplements available. Best for supplements available, human grade, gone through the absolute rigorous testing program. I mean, Narelle's got stat sheets on it and everything like that on demand. So if people want to know what they're actually putting into their dog's body supplement wise, they can reach out to her and she's got all the facts and figures before she even put it down as a physical product. She spent years and years researching it before it was actually come to market. So great stuff. Yes, the puppy's definitely on it. All our dogs are on it. And there's a shit ton of people around Australia and New Zealand who are taking caninesuticals and the feedback is astronomical. Amazing. Yep. Do you plan on taking Mando on your motorbike? If I did, you know who I'd have to go to, don't you? You'd have to get one of those Rowdy Hound boxes. Rowdy Hound dog kennels. Yeah. From Horny George. George Kittridge himself. You'd have to get one of those Rowdy Hound dog kennels to go on the back of your motorbike. How good is his social media? It's the best. Yeah. I love watching the dogs cruise around motorbikes. I think it's one of the coolest things ever. They've got their little doggles on. Yeah. You know, like we talk about living the best life. Well, for people who are motorcyclists, they can do both. I'm serious about thinking about getting one, but then I've got to train a – I don't know if having a Rottweiler on the back of a bike is going to be a great <laughs> idea. Your sport but, bike. <laughs> but, well, uh, I think you should do it. Maybe one day when I've got a smaller mid-sized dog, uh, I would get a Rowdy Hound dog kennel and mm. I could travel around. So I could not only enjoy the company of my dog, which hundreds of people seem to be doing across the United States of America, and I could motorcycle at the same time. So Amazing. two things that are very dear to my heart coming together. All right. This ad's going on for a long time. Mm. I need to get out of here and go and train some dogs. Yep. But do you know where I got the equipment that I'm going to use to train those dogs? The goat. 
The goat. The billy goat's gruff. Mine's a wiener. <laughs> <laughs> the wiener himself. <laughs> Ironswick Dog Quip. Yep. If you're not buying all your dog training gear from them, yep. I don't know where you're fucking getting it from. Well, if not from Furman, Ironswick Dog Quip, the Irons a wiener. How the hell does he sell anything being such a grumpy old bastard? He's online now. He's got a website. That's you right. Can, they don't have to deal with him. You correct. can actually buy things <laughs> off the website. You can actually do it now. Yep. IronswickDogQuip.com.au yep. or just .com. Probably one of them. I don't it's know. One of them. It just, we'll put it in the it show out. Notes. Yeah, put it, you'll, yeah, you'll click. You'll find a link. You buy some stuff. <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined. Oh, I'm in the studio. You with, are in the studio with my co-host, Glenn Cook. Yep. I'm not covered in Rona particles anymore. Nope. Well, hopefully not. Oh. <laughs> you know that skit from Rick James where he goes, cocaine's a hell of a drug. Yeah, yeah. Or coronavirus is a hell of a virus. Yeah. Yeah, when it gets you, yeah. I've had a range of different people telling me different things about it, and I know you've had it, and I think I had it originally. Like, I think I've had the original alpha version of it when I was in the States because it was very. it's a very similar beast. I was a lot sicker the first time I had it, mm-hmm. and it lasted a lot longer. A lot of very similar symptoms but just a fucking annoying process and this one was very very similar like you were doing your seminar and on the friday because we went to far north queensland we've got different resorts up there now so we went up to inspect them meet the staff so i spent three or four days up there we were just going from airport to airport to airport all along and you know like there were thousands of people just in everywhere and i thought if i'm going to get it i'm going to get it now for sure because i'm on a plane off a plane on a plane off a plane and it was just backwards and forwards sure enough i got back a couple of days later dave and i speaking he goes oh fuck i've got coronavirus and i'm thinking i've been sitting next to you on a plane <laughs> like yeah. i like every plane that we were on i was sitting right next to him we've yeah. been sleeping on a plane together traveling next to each other in a car yeah sitting next to each other in all the restaurants we were at literally sitting on each other's laps the entire time yeah and i thought for sure i've got it yeah and you had your seminar by Saturday morning, I had like a sandy, scratchy throat. Yep. You know, like I got up and I thought, I'll come out. And then I was I was sitting in there and I'm going, <clears throat> and I'm thinking, oh, fuck this. I better not come out. You know, I'll just do the right thing. Yeah. So I stayed inside. I just didn't tell anyone because I thought, I don't want to panic people. And then them thinking, well, I've been out there coughing all over the chairs or something like that. And then yeah, I'm yeah. thinking that I've given, I hadn't, I actually didn't go out there at all. I did the right thing. I just isolated and kept kept away from the staff, kept away from the seminar and everything like that. By Saturday night, full on symptoms. Yeah, they, it just slammed me, and I I got a rat test and did it, and um, a weak line came straight up, and I said to Narelle, "Yeah, fuck, I've got it." Yeah. By Sunday morning, I was like full into the weeds of Corona, yep. and um, by Monday, I had like a temperature of thirty nine. I was hallucinating. I hallucinated. Yeah. Like it was a really weird. Um, sensation. Like I was in the bathroom just standing there looking at the wall and the wall was like moving and pulsing and I'm thinking, oh man, I've got a fever. So I went back. That's when I found out I actually did have the fever and I went back to bed and just can't sleep, but you want, you need to sleep. It's, it's, it's fucked. Yep. Sure is. Yeah. So I had to enjoy that. And that was the the worst ride at the carnival. I give it one star. I don't recommend it. <laughs> yeah, Matt, it was a bummer. You couldn't come out at the seminar. We had a ball out I there. Know, I know. Um, it was good. It was amazing to get back at it. I haven't done that in like 12 months. Like I've done a lot of training for small groups, but not like a bigger sort of public thing like that. Yeah. It was great. Had a wonderful time. 
big thank you to everybody that that was there. I'm really bummed I missed it. Like you know, just getting to watch your work and but also networking. I mean, people were messaging me going, "Dude, where are you?" Like, yeah, yeah. I'm not used to seeing you not here. Like, what's happening? And I just said, "Oh, look, I'm. I think I'm sick, so I'm keeping my distance." And it was a real bummer. It yeah, really was. It was really sad because I that whole seminar networking thing and, you know, seeing people you haven't really caught. I, and they're people like legitimately haven't seen them for years. Yeah, yeah. They're always usually on the seminar circuits. They're yeah. always there and they're upskilling and educating themselves. Panos was st- supposed to stay here. He was going to stay here, but we got Mando and I just said, look, it's probably not a good time. And fortunately for him, he didn't pull the stop, stay here and then end up being sick with, with um, the Rona. victim. Mm. Mm. That's very annoying. Yeah. Interesting conversation we had with Kirsty Reed last yeah. week yep. in the last episode. And yep. that's had some good traction, which has really been good. I've been following the amount of signatures and it's well surpassed 5,000 now. Yeah. So I think they're about 5,400 or something like that. Still yeah. not enough. Like people, this is not the time to be apathetic. Yeah. Like really it's not. And I know some of these things are a pain in the ass. I don't like filling out online questionnaires. I'm really not a fan of them. I get halfway through them and then I dump them because they just they go yeah. on forever. This is not one of those things. This is just literally Oh, it takes two seconds. Put your first name, your your surname and your email, and if you want to write a little blurb there, you can. But as Kirsty pointed out, there's no there's nothing really to add to that. They can't submit what anything that you put there. So no, just it's just the support. Don't be one of the people who whinges and moans about it, but then did nothing about it when the opportunity knocked. Yeah. There's an old saying that I've said to many people over work careers or opportunities like this is that when opportunity knocks, be there to open the door. Mm. The door is there, open it, do your dues, and then you can be counted for as well. Something uh, to expand on from that episode. Again, I just want to you know give Kirsty and Brittany a big pat on the back and, and congratulate Marcia them. And Marsha as well. Yeah. Yeah, for doing incredible work and selfless work and Mm. and doing all of that, putting it out and, you know, it's their names aren't attached to it anywhere. They did, they did all of it and and good work to them. Yeah. But I also realized during it, you know, we sort of shit on the RSPCA a little bit or certainly I did. And one thing I did want to sort of explain is that I've met and know quite a number of actual RSPCA inspectors and I have no doubt that every single one of them is absolutely involved, like cares for animal welfare. Mm, Absolutely. Of course they do. You wouldn't do that job if it wasn't. You wouldn't put up with that, the shit they put up with. No. And the things that they see, because of people who really do fuck up dogs, right? Like mm. there's, and animals in general, you know, yep. mistreat horses, don't feed. Yeah, there's there's so many yeah, horrific there's, things there's that some, they do. There's some horrible, horrible human beings yeah. out there. And my issue is with the organization as a whole, like the head, not the individual people who would come out and, and do an inspection. In fact, all of my dealings and interactions with the individuals have been pleasant and great actually and mm. I support the work that they do. Yep. Absolutely. I think that it, it's just the political arm of it that that's the issue. I had a conversation with a colleague in the industry a while ago. We were talking about the same sort of concept where let's say for example our company pet resorts, you know, like let's say for example someone does something at work and causes a problem. It's not the entire organization that is the problem. It can be a rogue worker on the day that does something wrong. Yeah, you can get a bad rap just from one person. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with organisations like the RSPCA. Now, there are things that have upset a lot of people throughout history with the RSPCA. Certainly things that they've done, which like the organisation, not, you know, we're not talking about the individuals, but there are certainly things that the organisation has done where I've just thought you really aren't supporting the organisation well. Like you're not Mm -hmm. representing an even keel or an even balance. 
But that's not to speak of, as you said, the inspectors. We've had inspectors come out here before because people will do these random rogue, you know, oh, they're doing the wrong thing, an inspector will come out and they'll, we just say to them, yeah, look wherever you want to go, man. You, you can check our admin, you can check our features. So they know that there is no resistance to them coming here. They know that they're welcome here. They know that they're welcome to have a look around because mm-hmm. you get scumbags in the industry who dobbing other trainers in for using prong collars and all sorts of shit like that. They're just total assholes Mm -hmm. and they take up the resources of the RSPCA and that's not fair. You know, I really think that the RSPCA, like when people make fraudulent claims like that, they should charge them. The person who does the fraudulent. um, Oh mate, I've been a long-term, I've been saying forever on fraudulent claims. Yeah. If you can be proven to have made a fraudulent claim against someone and and they can prove that you did that maliciously, like knowing that they weren't actually doing the thing that you're claiming, Mm. you should receive the punishment that they would have had they been convicted of it. Yeah. And I I think that's coming. Those sort of laws are looking more like they're going to turn in towards. Now, you know, I've spoken to people and they've said people should be able to ring up and make just complaints, but a name and number needs to be taken down. And then if they go out and look and then come back and say, they're totally legitimate. You need to explain yourself now. Like now you're in trouble for wasting the resources and time of, you know, either the police or the RSPCA or whoever need to get involved in that. Yeah, totally. Because that like, you're literally scraping the bottom of the barrel when you're doing those type of things. Mm. That's what they do have to endure. And that's why they do get a bad reputation for it sometimes because they're the ones that have to turn up and act on the complaint. Yeah. And that's not fair to them because as you said, I've known inspectors too. They're good people. They've got good morals. They've got good hearts. You know, they're in it for the right reason. They're there to stop people being malicious and cruel and, and doing some of the most heinous things towards animals. And it does need to be a police force in existence for that. I do think that this lack of regulation where they're largely unregulated, I do think that needs to change. I think that they need to be accountable and auditable, certainly to some government agency or even to the people of the Commonwealth. They need to be accountable to them um, and answerable. So there is accountability and there is audibility in some scope. Mm. You know, the issue is like animal welfare is incredibly important and the way that professional dog trainers are doing things is probably not at the pointy end of the problems we have in animal welfare. Mm. Like I think even when you, like we, I know we've discussed this plenty of times, but even the, the trainers that we look at and go, that's fucking terrible training. That's still not the big problem of animal welfare, right? Like, Mm. and if it is, if that's our biggest problem, then holy shit, congratulations. Because that means that there's no dog fighting going on anywhere. There's no dogs that are being malnourished in someone's yard. There's no dogs that are being forced to, you know, being dumped on the streets. Like if the biggest problem that we have is someone using a prong collar, then fucking hell, we're in a good state. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. I don't think that's the case. I think that those other issues continue to exist. There's a myriad of issues that exist in different categories. And one of those categories is there's genuinely people out there who don't feel love or empathy towards animals. They just don't see them as a living, feeling entity. They just see that as meat or fodder or a beast of burden, so to speak. They just don't have the same feeling. Like the way that we feel and the outrage we feel over things that are being done to animals, there are other people out there that don't possess that feeling at all. Like it's just not part of their their physical and mental makeup. That also exists in different tiers. There are things that 
concern us, like the use of tools or the use of training implementations and so forth, where there's other people say, well, I feel differently about that. Yeah. And that's always going to be, there's always going to be a cause and effect in this range of different tiers of feelings about how people do feel about animal welfare and so forth. And I agree with you entirely. Animal welfare is absolutely important. It's got to be at the forefront of everybody's mind who's in this industry. It's in the forefront of our mind all the time, like operating our businesses. I mean, you know, like we've grown exponentially. I was telling you before about the growth that we've had. Animal welfare is on our mind all the time. Mm. Like the people that we employ, the people that we're associated with, the people that own the company, everybody involved at whatever level always has animal welfare at the forefront. You know, Mm. like our ethos, our core model system of, of our function is pet care, pet care and pet welfare. So we're always thinking about that. We're a business and we need to be profitable, but we won't be profitable unless we have considerations of animal welfare. And that has to be. That's the way it is. And if we do get that rogue person who isn't doing their job well, well, they're not here long. That's what we call a former employee because that's not the sort of person that we want in the organisation. Anybody who loses their mojo and, and isn't doing their job well, well, they're done. It's not something like you're just a factory worker and you're just putting things on a shelf and, you know, like having a bad day in a factory means that the box isn't square. A bad day in a kennel where dogs aren't being cared for properly or medications aren't getting the due attention that they need, that can be life-threatening. So we don't tolerate that. We let staff know you need to have a certain skill set and you need to abide by that. Yeah. It's just a huge topic. It is. And, and lots. I think so we're, we've, we've done it to death and there, there's still way more we could talk about. One thing I will just say before we start like getting back to what we had a plan to talk about is the thing that concerns me is many years ago, I had a client without exaggeration was horrified that I had my dogs in my car at the session that we were doing. Now she had a severely reactive dog, two of them in fact, and I took my dogs to assist in the training of that because I don't want to, you know, when I'm assessing that kind of stuff and when we're doing training and we're, I need dogs that I aren't going to make the situation worse. I need dogs that, you know, all the things that dog trainers know, you need a work dog, right? Mm. That, that assists in those sorts of things. And I had my dogs in the car, parked out the front of her house. I have a temperature controlled car. I have an electronic system within it that I can check on my phone and see what the temperature is in my car. Yeah, I've seen it. My dogs are safe. It wasn't even a hot day. Yep. And she told me flat out that she thought that was straight animal abuse, that my dogs were in the car and was horrified that my dogs were there. I was like, lady, the reason my dogs are here is because you have treated your dogs so poorly. You have spoiled them. And and I mean it in the true sense of the word. Like you have ruined these dogs. You have mm. spoiled them to the point where they are actually dangerous to be around. Mm. And you are telling me that I am being cruel to my dogs, that it is abuse that my dogs have accompanied me here to attempt to help you fix your problem. This is the issue that some people's perception of what is cruel and what is not is so far away from reality that I don't even know how we can address that. So trying to get someone like that to come around to the idea of understanding a complex issue like bronchitis, Mm. it's outrageous. But here's the thing. I tell you, I got her to use a prong collar probably two years later of dealing uh, after going through many things. And in the end, she stopped. She acknowledged how well it had worked. They radically changed the way that her dogs, you know, reacted and she got the dogs under control and the dogs lived a much better life. And then one day someone said something to her, noted, remarked about the prong collars and she stopped using them. 
and can no longer walk the dogs. And I, I fired her as a client because yep. she was like, you know, I, I'm not going to use the prong collars anymore because, you know, someone remarked to me about them. And so like, I, I'm going to continue on the path that I was on. And I was like, that is bad for your dogs. You understand that? And she's like, no, because someone said that I was cruel by using it. And, and I was like, yes, but you once told me I was cruel for having my dogs in the car. And I explained to you quite fiercely mm. that actually, no, it wasn't. I stood my ground and explained to you the issue. Here we are two years later. I've convinced you even to use a prong collar because you've understood that it is in the interest of your dogs. You have noted, you have seen the improvement in their, their lives. You have them under control. You're able to enrich them, fulfill them. You can actually walk them without a ridiculous amount of stress for yourself and for them. Your life is by every measure objectionably better, except someone said something to you about them. And so now you're not going to use them and the the problems have all come back. And now you want me to help you. So I'm not doing it because you don't actually care about your dogs. You care about the perception of it, but not the reality of it. Mm. When we're dealing with people like that, and that's just one of many, 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 what chance do we have? There was a guy that I used to work at his kennel in Melbourne years ago when I really sort of first started getting into doing my own board and trains and everything like that. So I used to basically just hire a kennel block off him. We used to talk about that same concept with people because they really got under my skin. Like I just can't, I couldn't believe there was no changing their mind. Mm. Like they were so fixated on a path of thinking that there was nothing that you could do to convince them otherwise. And he was an older guy, like he'd be in, uh, probably in his nineties now. And he said to me, it's called bloody mindedness. And he said, and when you get with those type of people, not only is it almost impossible to change their mind, when you kind of have a small win like you do, they quickly revert at the drop of a hat. Any external advice or anything that shakes their foundation, they return straight to where they were. I used to try and battle against that. I used to try and win those people over. But then I realized to myself, it's so much laborious effort of really getting nowhere It's like the phrase, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Well, literally all you're doing is you're locked in a negative feedback loop with that person. I either wait for people to come around themselves. You give them the capability to do so. Like you say, here is the information digested at your will. Mm -hmm. So rather than now than lose sleep over it, I don't, I just move on because I just figure to myself, there's no point in trying to change a mind that's already bent. My grandfather, given my grandmother used to knock over a vase he'd go down in his garage and glue it together with araldite and there'd be big blobs of araldite all over it looked fucking ridiculous yeah yeah. and i used to look at some of the things in the in the house that was that was smashed it wasn't worth preserving it literally fucked it i kind of categorize people like that sometimes like once they're a drop vase there's just there's just (laughs) no point in trying to put it back together yeah you just understood it's a wreckage and just move on there's no point in trying to sit there and 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 fight it out with them anymore yeah because there's just no resolve and there's no there's no peace in your life anymore there's so many things that are stressful in life there just needs to be areas where you can improve on mindfulness and peacefulness in your life rather than being in that antagonistic state and fighting with people all the time it's what what's the point yeah as you said before why have a client that you don't like turning up there you don't like working with them you don't like being around them their ethos and their modus operandi is just sickening to your core why put yourself through the agony of that yeah like i've had clients before myself where i've thought to myself oh yeah but it's money 
it's the worst form of work that you can possibly take on because yeah. you either got to sit there and, and nod your head in fictitious agreement just so you can collect that filthy fistful of money at the end of the lesson when you vehemently disagree with what they're saying. Yeah. For me, it's different than other people. I'm in a good position where I don't need to suck that bag of dicks, so to speak. <laughs> Eat that bag of dicks. Eat that bag of dicks, yeah. yeah. That bowl yeah. of dicks. Oh, t- with dick sauce. I was thinking <laughs> – I was thinking – of coronavirus the other day and it's like you really do eat a bag of dicks and every fucking crumb that's in the end of the bag like that's <laughs> that, that's a perfect description for it uh, all right hey let's, for anyone that's still listening <laughs> us just pining our woes away you and me being the two old judges in the muppet show yeah, sitting up in the, a in the pair box, of just, whiny old fucks <laughs> Anyway, hey, let's get back. So we're still working through this post. It's now 11 weeks old, but this has been a content farm like none other. And I appreciate everybody because there's still people putting stuff into there, uh, which is fantastic. And and, um, it's fun to answer these questions. And this one is a doozy. Uh, and it actually relates a lot to what we've just been talking about, actually. And so it comes from, I love this name. I'm almost positive I'm not going to say it correctly, from Minke Vanderberg. Yes, yes. Did I say from, it correctly? I, yeah, I believe so. Would it be I, Minke or Mink? Minke. Or Minka. Minka. Yeah, Minke. it could be Minka. I think Minka is from Holland. Minke Vanderberg. Yeah. I love it. Do you know whose voice is the coolest? Whose? Werner Herzog. He's Austrian. I think mm-hmm. Austrian accents are the coolest. Uh, like Arnold Schwarzenegger style. Oh, yeah. But like his is just like a, uh, it's beautiful. I could listen to him talk all day. Anything that he narrates, I'm in. I, I don't care what he's talking about. I want to hear it. Is he famous? He's made a bunch of movies, like really amazing films, mm. but he's in a bunch of movies as well. He often plays like a bad guy because he's an old Austrian man. Yeah, he's he's fantastic. You, you'd know him the moment you see yeah, him. Yeah, I probably would. Him. Yeah. Mm. Werner Herzog. Okay. Anyway. So Minke, if that is how you say it, says motivation. What if you know, in capital letters, you love training dogs, using science-based training, coaching and inspiring others, but you're going through a rough patch in your own motivation. Which steps would you take to spark your dog training fire once more? I have a question on top of this question. Okay. What isn't science-based training? Yeah. This whole concept where people are saying science-based training what isn't science-based training? Well, like, I mean, what isn't it? That's the issue, right? I, I think that that's probably another whole topic altogether is that's a loaded question because you hear everybody kind of says what they do is science-based and it largely is, but you hear, yeah, like what science? Usually that's something, not always, and I don't know what uh, how Minka Vandenberg fits into it, but often that's a cry from like the force-free community, mm. say what they do is science-based because you can pull out a paper that will prove anything you like really. But that's the point is like it kind of conjures up this thought in my head that there's a scientist sitting there with a couple of beakers and test tubes and they're pouring liquids into each other and they go, ha ha, ha ha. I have the liquid that's going to produce the greatest generation of dog trainers we've ever seen. And yeah. and, and it's science-based because I've just concocted it in a laboratory. Yeah. I've got a laminar flow hood in the background and I've got all the beakers and I've got the Bunsen burner burning in the background. That's science-based training, my friends, right there. Yeah. You heard it here on the Canine Paradigm. <laughs> <laughs> well, but let's answer the question because okay. um, yes. this strikes a chord with me, actually. Read it again now that I've- You've had your joke? I've had my joke. Motivation. What if you know you love training dogs, using science-based training, coaching and inspiring others, but you're going through a rough patch in your own motivation? Which steps would you take to spark your dog training fire once more? Well, you should answer this because you went through it recently. Yeah, big time, mate. And Mm. so what happened for me earlier in the year 
I think what happened when COVID hit, like, you know, 2019 was this huge year for me. And it was when people started to give a shit about things I had to say. I traveled heaps and I really love teaching. Like, mm. and, and I know we've been through this a million times. Like I'm good at training dogs. I'm, I'm very good, but I'm, I'm really good at training people. Yep. I'm good enough at training dogs. I'm not going to be world champion at anything, but I understand the processes. I understand how to do it. And I really enjoy coaching other people. How yeah, to do you it. are a good coach. It's what I'm really good at. Yep. And, and I'm a storyteller and a mm. teacher. And so I'd built my career to this point. And, and like, it's not like I really had a career in mind. It wasn't like there was something I wanted to achieve beyond like personal goals within dog training. And for me, that personal goal was getting a PSA three. I wanted to do that. Right. Yep. I really, really wanted to do that. I continue to want to do that. When COVID hit and, yeah, 2020 was this booked out year for me. I had locked it all in. It was all these giant events that I had set up ready mm. to go. And the calendar was full by sort of late 2019. My 2020 was full. And all the wheels were in motion for this giant year. And my plan was to work my ass off. And me and Jane wanted to have another baby. And the plan was, because, you know, when Rip was born, I left the army. We had this idea in our mind that when I left the army, I was just going to get a job mm. and Jane was going to have a career. And so dog training was my job. And I never really expected any of this to happen. And I never expected that people beyond clients locally would be interested in what I had to say. The podcast changed all of that. Social media changed all of that. You know, suddenly people around the world are interested in things that I have to say and want to attend event, events that I can put on. Mm. And similarly, sort of Jane had some issues with her hands tattooing so much. And, and so things kind of flipped where she was going to just work and I was going to pursue sort of a career. So when, but when I left the army, I was at home, you know, I didn't work that much beyond training dogs. And I spent a lot of time with Rip when he was a baby and I loved it. I did, you know, I was a home dad and mm. it was the best job in the world. And I wanted to do that again. And so the plan was that I was going to work my guts out in 2020. I was going to be gone a ton. And then I would hardly work in, in 2021 and probably into 2022 and we're going to have a baby and I would have made enough money that, you know, I'm not like a very financially motivated person beyond having enough money to be, to do the things I want to do. Yeah. And so that was how it was going to go. And then COVID just put this big end to that. And I, I didn't really feel the repercussions of that until it kind of all ended. And it was right at the start of this year when I got COVID myself that I sort of had this realization that my career is fucked it's in the toilet. I am not going to achieve what I could have. And it's not what I wanted to, it's what I could have. And so it's like, I'm still happy. I'm still, you know, I still enjoy doing what I'm doing, but the trajectory of my career has radically changed mm. because I feel, I feel like, and you know, maybe I'm the lone ranger on this, but for me, there's a, this hefty weight of evidence to prove that I know what I'm talking about. And that is competing with my dog. And I haven't been able to do that in you know four years mm. in my chosen sport. Right. And so that for me was a big kick in the dick. And I realized at the start of the year when I had COVID then, I was like, I'm not going to get that level three. I'll be lucky if I close. And he's falling apart, right? His body is, is and this is when he broke both his legs, right? Yep. So I've got COVID and he's got two broken legs. We're at home together. And I was like, we are not going to get that level three. That's for sure. And we're probably not even going to close out the level two. It really kicked me around. And then it was, you know, there was this case of, for me, Real concern over, I'm full of shit. That's how I felt. I was like, I'm full of shit because I talk about what it is to compete and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, I haven't done it in, in years. 
And I talk about what it is to train a dog to like a really high level. And I certainly was on a trajectory to prove that I can do that. Mm. But because I, you know, I just raise dogs to move them other places. It, Remy's the oldest, the longest I've ever, aside from Valerie, who's like my pet, you know, like that's, he's the longest I've kept a working dog. I've never kept a working dog that long. You know, it was like, what am I doing here? And it was a big one for me. Me and you sort of had it out about like, I was like, mate, I think I'm done. I think I might not be a dog trainer anymore. Yeah, I remember that wasn't so long ago you and I had that big talk. Yeah, and I was like, I was just really flat on it. And it was, you know, missing the fact that competition, we haven't had a trial. I'm not going to be able to achieve the things that I wanted to achieve. And therefore, for me, it was a case of like, who am I to say these things? Who am I to talk to thousands of people talking about dog training and and giving my opinion like it fucking matters? Mm. I was on the cusp of just sort of saying, well, I'm not going to do this anymore. And at the same time, I felt this pressure of I was offered a job that I took that's not, it's got nothing to do with dog training. It's in, in media. And, uh, I really love it. (laughs) So I was at this sort of crux of, am I a dog trainer or do I, you know, what I do in this job is I make social media content for people, right? Essentially. And and not just social media, but I make multimedia content stuff. Right. Mm. And I really enjoyed doing it. And I was at this point of like, I have to be one of these things. And I really was tormenting myself over which one of those things am I? And then I realized I was like, what do you give a fuck? Like, I just kind of dawned on me one day. I was like, why are you tearing yourself apart over this? You love training your own dog, whether you get those titles or not. Nobody probably cares beyond me. There's probably some people that will one day when I say something controversial or, you know, I take a stance on the way e-collars are used in a post to someone else. They'll say, well, what the fuck have you achieved? And, I, and I'll go, well, not that much, actually. Like, I've, I've done what I could, but circumstance meant that I couldn't. And Remy will age out. I'll get another dog. I'll maybe achieve certain things with that dog, right? But I can't just get another dog. It wouldn't fit within my life because we had that baby and I don't. I have a baby now and I don't want a puppy. And I, I, if I get another dog of my own, it means I can't bring in other dogs. And so, like, it's just not, it's just not practical. Mm. And, of course, there'll be someone one day who calls me out and says, well, you've achieved nothing and you say all these things, go fuck yourself. And then I realized there's plenty of people that were doing that already, <laughs> right? Mm. I didn't care about them then. So why would I care about other people in the future? Right. So I just kind of shed it and what it was, and this is kind of coming around to answering Minka's question is I just realized I love training my dogs Mm. and I love training people who are willing and, and interested in what I have to say. And there are plenty of people who are not interested in what I have to say, and that's totally fine. And there are plenty of dogs that I don't want to train and that's totally fine too. And so I've just realized like, you know, and it's exactly what we were just talking about before. Like I don't spend one second doing anything that I don't love doing. Mm. Like, of course I make money and both, you know, I, all the work that I do, I make money out of doing it all and I make a great living. But if any one of those things causes me stress in a way that I, that is, you know, not stressful. It's not like I avoid stress entirely. Like I have a, ridiculous workload. Most people would crumble under the workload that I have, but it's stuff that I love to do. Mm. So there's, yeah, I work like 16 hours a day. I'm never not working. And that's the issue I think for anybody that works themselves and contracts to anybody else. Like you're kind of never not working, right? Yeah, it's it's a it's a constant yeah. flow. And so, you know, tonight when we finish this podcast, we're going to go out there and it's club, right? I'm going to mm. go out there and train a bunch of dogs. What category do I put that in? Is that work or is that my hobby? Because 
like, I don't know. I can't delineate that. No one's paying me to be out there, but I'm developing my skill set. I'm doing something that I love. A lot of my job involves drawing from experiences of you know, my own training. A lot of when I'm training other people, even talking on this podcast, it requires me to be getting new experiences that I have things to talk about. So tonight I'm excited because there's a couple of people bringing dogs that they're interested in seeing if the dogs are suitable to do bite work. And I'm going to try and tease that out of those dogs. And no one's paying me to do that. But for me, I don't know whether I put that in the category of, am I at work when I'm out there or am mm. I doing a hobby while I'm out there? Well, I don't it's know. it's a jobby category kind of, isn't it? Yeah. And so that's exactly it. And mm. so I feel like when I lacked motivation what I realized was when was I the happiest in training dogs? When was I the absolute happiest in training dogs? And it was in the jobby phase. Mm. It was for me like when it was just something that I did because I loved it and it turned out that I could make some money from it, right? And I think that that is where I've gone back to myself again. I'm back into being a jobby person in the dog industry and I still work a ton. I still like, I'm still doing a ton of dog training, right? Mm. But- I don't think of myself as just that because I think if I thought of myself as just that, I would be really depressed, especially with everything that's going on, you know, within the dog training industry and all that sort of shit. Right. So the answer to the question is how do you remain motivated is I think go back to first principles of how did you become motivated in the first place? What was your driving force to be motivated? And for me, it was training my own dogs and talking to people about how I do it. Yep. And and that is first principles of dog training for me. I fucking love doing that. And I feel like I love training my own dogs. It is one of the things that makes me the happiest and, and absent doing it, I get itchy, you know? Mm. And then I love talking to people about training dogs and assisting them in training their dogs. And the moment that someone tries to suck the life out of me now and, and wants to do something like cause a problem for me or whatever, I'm just like, cool, man, you do that over there. I just don't care. I'm just not interested. Yeah. They're the people to leave behind. They're the people to leave in your wake. Yeah. Just say, I'm, I'm done with you. Like, yeah. There's no point in having a relationship with those type of people because they will just drag you down to a miserable level. Yeah. Or even really just allocating too much of your, your brain power to them. Mm. I think that's the issue. So for me, how do I, and, and I became more, I'm more motivated now in dogs than I have been in two years. Mm. And it's because I'm training my own dogs again for fun because I, I don't, you know, like I love training for that Mondio trial, even though I like, you know, knew pretty close to what, yeah, you know, people ask, <laughs> are you going to have another go? And yep. I was like, I don't really see the point because nothing's going to change. Yep. Like I'm not undoing all the PSA training yeah. in because they're doing another trial, but it's in like, you know, like a month it would be luck again. So maybe I'll turn up and roll the dice again and see if the scenario favors the way that like is suitable for my dog, maybe. Yeah. But like, I just enjoy the training of it. I'm not really that tied to the outcome. I enjoy mm. the process of doing it. So going back to first principles of like, why did you enjoy to become what you are in the dog space to begin with and go back to that and don't worry about what you've become. Worry about like, you know, what was it that got you there and use that as your motivation going forward. There's a very simple saying that it dawns on me when I'm reflecting these very moments myself, because you go through a lot of contemplation about life, where you are, where you want to be, who you want around you, all of these things. And that changes, it ebbs and flows. But I always come back to this saying, wherever you go in life, there you are. Mm. And I think about that on a regular basis. Sometimes you're not exactly where you want to be, but sometimes you're exactly where you need to be. And there's a lesson in there. 
of everything that happens, whether it's I'm having a really good day or I'm having a really bad day, I'm still asking myself, what am I learning from this? What was my teacher in this moment? I remember you and I having that conversation when you were going through that dark patch. Like I reminded you that at that time when I could see you flashing history before your eyes and I said to you, you're too important to this industry just to walk away from it. I know what you're going through. I can see the agony that you're, that you're going through. And part of that for you is you thrive in front of a crowd. Like mm. you're, a, you're a crowd pleaser, an entertainer. You're kind of like a rock star that likes to get out there and rock out on stage and jam away and do your big riff solos and stuff like that. And everybody just like, Whoa, you know. <laughs> but that, that's what you do when you're out there training, you know, like you practice your skill and you've got your instrument and that's your instrument is your knowledge about training. And especially in, you know, like the activation through pressure, that's your jam. That's something that, you know, probably better than most people in the world right now. Like mm. it's something that you've really done a lot of soul searching and a lot of refining and shaping into getting where you got to. So when that was sort of robbed from you, I could see that took a big chunk of your soul away, especially in something that you loved. It was kind of like a form of, of negative punishment. Like you were, you, oh, were, yeah. you were sin binned from something that you love and you could, you had no way of accessing it anymore. And even the online stuff was just like, it's not the same. It's not the same. It was like those sort of moments, they happen and they ebb and flow. And I mean, man, I've, I've had some great times in this industry where I've just been really enthusiastic and really, you know, like on top of the world about things. And I've had other times where I'm just thinking, what am I doing? Like, am I just, am I getting too long in the tooth? Mm. There's a good Tame Impala song where the lyrics are basically talking about, you know, like as you're starting to get older and things are starting to change and it's not the same and you're not the cool guy you used to be and stuff like that. I listened to that in the car the other day and going, fuck, this is now my theme song. (laughs) (laughs) Again, getting back to that old saying, no matter where you go in life, there you are. Like you're supposed to go through variations and evolutions in what you're doing. If you want to be motivated about something, I think you hit the nail on the head nicely with what you said before, because a certain technique that I go to with whatever I'm doing is if I'm finding the topic or the technique too difficult where I am at the moment, it means I'm not ready to be there. Mm. I need to find the area where I did enjoy it. If you need to do some backstepping for a little bit, just to find where you're, you're feeling back in your comfort and a little on the stage of being pressured, that's a good place to be because you're you're back in a learning. You haven't taken yourself so far back where you're just comfortable and you're sort of hiding away in a very convenient area. You need to put yourself in a position where you think, yeah, this is doable again. Mm. Like I'm now reminded that there's a little bit of discomfort here, but not so much where I just feel like I'm out of my league. Like I'm just second guessing everything I'm doing every day I turn up. There's times where I have discussions and we've talked about these sort of things within the podcast and just in general chit chats with groups of people, you and me, me and Narelle, all sorts of people. But there are definitely times where you just need to really examine what it is that you want to do. Yeah. Sometimes you come to that crossroad and you just need to re-examine which path is now the most suitable one for you. Mm. Or is it a version of where you are now, but adding something or subtracting something away from it? Like there are times where I've just thought to myself, I'm not really sufficient to talk about this or be involved in this. Like I made references many episodes ago about mistakenly getting involved in trying to be an expert in lure coursing when I had no right to be. The best thing I would I should have done now is when you look back on it and you're not so stuck fast on where your ego is taking you is to literally say, 
this is just not a good area for me anymore. Mm. I don't know anything about it. What I'm best off doing is saying I'm either not interested in it and completely walk away and leave the group, which is what I should have done because I'm not interested in lure coursing. If, if truth be said, I think it's entertaining to watch it, but I'm not interested in training it. I'm not interested in being involved in it. I'm not interested in joining a club in it. Therefore, I have no stakes in it. And therefore, I have no right to talk about it as far as anything else than, hey, that looks cool. I have no right to talk about it as a training model. But if I change my mind on that, then what I need to do is do what most people should do is mentor themselves, you know, like either find somebody that's suitable or find some online content or turn up and watch and see what you can absorb from whatever you're doing and then upskill yourself from there. And then you do have the right to talk about it and you do have the right to be involved in it. No matter where you go in life, there you are. And that's entirely up to you. You're at your own ship's helm. You're the captain of your own ship. So you're steering yourself. No matter the influences that people have externally in your life, the good work that people do in psychiatrics or whatever, when you need to go and see those type of people, you still have to arrive at that conclusion. They basically tell you to turn left and turn right and and try and set a course for you and, and try and make that imagery easier for you to see. But still... No matter where you go, there you are. And that's up to you. Oh man, that's heavy. It is heavy. I spend a lot of time thinking about those sort of things because like everybody, there are moments of darkness in all our life. That doesn't matter whether it's personal or professional or whatever it is. It's really up to you to do the best you can with what you've got. Yeah. You can either be stuck fast on causing yourself more problems. It was in The Incredibles too. The guy who plays Mike in Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad, he plays one of the characters in there that helps the Incredibles out. Oh, yeah. The, and he, the, I think he the says agent some, guy. Yeah, the agent guy. And he, I think he says something along the lines of, in order not to hit rock bottom, you've first got to let go of the shovel. Mm. And people don't realize they're just keeping on digging while they're complaining about how deep their hole is getting, mm. you know, but they're the one that's driving the depth of how far down they're going because they won't let go of that fucking shovel. Yeah. It's a tricky one. I think all of this is the risk of following your passion because when you see people who are, I always use the same example, there's probably accountants that hate me, but like, (laughs) (laughs) like accountants go to work, they do their accounting and they probably have some like mad hobby that is their passion that build Lego or whatever the fuck they do. Right. Yep. And I think the big issue that we have in dog training is that we've monetized our passion. Mm. And I think that's such a dangerous thing to do. Like, I think that it can be amazing. It can absolutely be amazing, but it's really a double-edged weapon. And I think that uh, I saw a meme one time, I think Ben Lipinski posted it. Maybe even Ben, I think. But anyway, it was like, oh, so you've got a nice little, it was like someone's, I think it was a Twitter post actually. It was like, oh, I see you got got a nice little hobby there. Oh, I see that it's become like a, a tenant, a key part of your personality. Oh, I see that you've monetized it. Oh, I see that like you now no longer have a passion for it. <laughs> right? Like it's, yep. and I think that's the problem that we face a lot in dog training is, is that transition from the jobby to the job. Mm. And then it's like, okay, like I love doing this. This is what I would do for free given like if I was a millionaire I'm still, you know, if I had an endless amount of money, I'm still a guy with a bunch of money and some fucking, I, I would probably have more dogs. Yeah, <laughs> I would be, if I had endless money and resources, I would be training way more dogs than I am now. Yeah, because you could just say, well, I don't need to get out of bed for finances anymore. I yeah. can go and train I'd, my dogs wherever and whenever I want. Big kennel bank full of dogs. But then it becomes a hobby. 
Yeah. Because it's no longer the job you're a job. But that's that's what I mean. So yeah. like when it is, it's something that you're super passionate about and you would do it for free. Once you've monetized it and you're like, okay, but now I have to, mm. can really change the way you think about it and, and the way you identify with it. And certainly, like I say, that's what happened to me. And it, it wasn't so much about money. It, it really wasn't about money at all. It For me, it was more about like, I identify as this thing and I feel pressure within the, like from the industry that it was largely false. Like I was putting that pressure on myself. Mm. Um, but also I feel this pressure to do that, but I also want to do something else as well. Mm. And it was like, but which one of those things am I? And for me, it was just a reconciliation of I'm do whatever I want. Like, why do I care what other people think? Like, you know, beyond people, it's taken me a long time to come to this understanding and it's a work in progress. It's not something that uh, is done and I can put it on the shelf, but it is divorcing myself from the idea of what people think of me beyond thinking that I'm like fair and kind, like at that, like I do want people to feel that way about me because I want to be thought of. I I try really hard to be that, Mm. but beyond that, it's like, I'm not in, I'm not in control of how you feel about me. Like, I'm just going to do what I feel like is the right thing to do for me. I'm going to follow my dreams going to follow my passions. Um, and you know, as a person who has people that, you know, listens to my opinion, if you're listening to the show, you know, if you follow me on social media, it's not like we're famous people or anything, but we're people within the industry that like people listen to, to divorce myself from the idea of putting myself in a box and that box then containing my I don't, know, I don't even know how to explain it, but that's what I feel like, like that breaking free of the box that you might've put yourself in within the industry yep. is the key to regaining your motivation to train your own dogs and, and enjoy the industry again is breaking free of the box that you probably put yourself into. And to be honest, nobody probably gives a fuck about you breaking out of it because they don't even see it. They don't represent the box. They don't see the box. They don't think that it's even there in the same way that you do yourself. You're not the sum of those parts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and and you're a lot of things beyond what you are to the dog world and, and in the dog world. I'm telling you, man, Kung Fu Panda 3, at the end when he has the realisation of who he is, like the culmination of being, you know, a son and a mentor and a the dragon warrior, like when he has that real epiphany, like I'm not just one person. I'm the culmination of a lot of mm. experiences in my life. Like I've become who I am based on the people that I'm surrounded myself, the skills that I've attained, the journeys that in life that I've endured, the pains that I've suffered. You aren't the sum of one part. You're a collection of a multitude of things yeah. on any given day. See, there's days where you're not involved in dog training and you're with your army buddies and, you know, like you're not obsessing about dog training then. You're talking about old things that happened in time. So yeah. you're a different person during that time. Yeah. And then when you come back and teach in front of seminars, you're a different person in that time. That's the culmination of different experiences coming out in who you are. I think the nice thing about it as we've been toiling around with this is that there are so many opportunities and so many things that are involved in it. And what you need to look at is, especially when you're in a bit of a dark path, is draw on the experiences and think about those sort of things which made you feel great. Yeah. You know, like where you experienced a highlight in that time. There are times for me, for example, you know, like when I used to talk about some of the old things that we used to do at ADTs, like I, I probably think they were the, the highlight of my life they were a collection of some of the best experiences because I kind of felt like every single day that I was going there, I was going to work with all my mates 
I wasn't just turning up and training dogs. We were at a training center. There'd be 15 trainers there and they're all people that I really enjoyed being around. So, you know, like we were just hashing out training topics and techniques. And at that point in time, there really wasn't all these worldly pressures on you. Like you have to be the Belgian world champion or you have to be the Mondio three champion of the world or anything like that. Like there's pressures on people now who start getting famous or infamous in training. Like that's where, you know, like the call outs start to become, oh, but you're not IGP world champion or you're not this or you're not that. That might be true. But for some of us, those opportunities don't exist. But there are opportunities in other areas. Like there are other people in the world who are really good in one area, but they're severely lacking in others. Yeah. They aren't terrific people coaches. And there's people in the fucking pet dog training world, as I've spoken before, and they're fucking champions. They're soldiers in the ditches, like out at work every day solving problems for people that's not going to get solved on an IGP fucking trial. Yeah. These are people who are literally saving dogs' lives. So you can be a champion in another area that will be a lot less thankful and it won't reach the media headlines and it certainly won't go around the world, but it doesn't mean that you're not beneficial and it doesn't mean that you haven't changed somebody's life. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that you haven't saved another dog. Yeah. So all of those considerations have to be in, like there are people out there that have come and done the NDTF course and they're just upskilling themselves like to get the qualification, but they've been out training for a while and they've told me about it and they've, they kind of look down on themselves like they're not important. And I said, why aren't you important? You're out there still helping people communicate with their dogs. How many dogs do you think you've saved? How many times do you think you've stopped a dog from going into the welfare or beyond system? You know, they've thought about it and thought, oh, probably into the hundreds now. And I said, and you don't feel good about that? Like that hasn't changed lives. Like you haven't taken the absolute fucking horror and grief away from people who are sitting on the precipice of don't understand what to do next with their dog and really thinking I'm an absolute subhuman piece of shit right now because I don't know how to fix this dog and I don't know how to communicate with it. And all of a sudden you've come into their house, you've changed their life. And I thought everything changed. Like I've just had a complete epiphany about the potential and the possibility I've had. Everybody who does those sort of things, they add value to what's going on in our industry. They fix and transform lives. But let's not talk about just the the lives of the people that they went around there. What about the dog who it was on the concept of death row at that point in time? That dog didn't know how lucky it was that that person came into their life yeah. and stopped them from literally getting a green needle the very next day. Yeah. I can't count on my hands and toes. I'd need probably thousands of hands and toes or fingers and toes, I should say, I would need thousands of them to count how many people have changed lives like that. You've done that. I've done that. We've changed the life of a family, of a single suffering person, and certainly a shit ton of dogs, a shit ton of them. And there are people that listening to this podcast who are doing exactly the same. Don't undervalue yourself ever, especially when you're doing good work. Yeah. I think you're spot on, mate. And that's the issue with the rhetoric of, well, if you haven't won the world championship, then your opinion's irrelevant. You know, that's the issue with that. There's so many people who do incredible work that we've never heard of and will never hear of because they've just got their head down, bum up, doing incredible work within their local community and changing the lives of so many pet dogs for the better. And because they're so busy doing that, they will never be IGP world champion because they haven't got time to go out and do it on the weekend. Yeah, We've talked about this before and I've come around with my way of thinking of it. I do find it more valuable and I think that it's an asset and you're right. It is something that trickles down and it has an effect and it changes minds and it inspires people. And there's different things and techniques that we pick up from all those things. Nonetheless, it's only still for a very, very, very small percentage 
of the professional or the amateur dog training world that'll ever get there. Mm. It's a it's a tiny amount of people. And those people are hard workers and they deserve their dues, they deserve their crown, they've worked hard. Anybody in those sort of fields who have done it, doesn't matter whether they're doing it in a state competition level or whether they're doing it in a in a national level or they're doing it in the world championship level. They're still awesome at what they've done. They're still it's still fantastic that they're actually out there doing something. I think one of the the inspirations that people should reach to is you're changing lives. You really are. Like you're transforming things for people. Like things that were really getting muddied up are now becoming unstuck. They're solvable. People can see that there's reason and there is hope. Mm. And I think, you know, like you and I have talked about the in, importance of hope over so many episodes and even through the training practices of Napopo, like that really talks about the principle or the carrot at the end of the stick, that great big shining beacon of hope, mm. you know, like getting through pressure and realizing the hope of, you know, like there was benefit in doing this and there has to be that in life as well. Like you have to understand that yes, life is a carrot and a stick, but that carrot is achievable. It's definitely achievable. You, you can really get hold of it, but sometimes you just got to work for it. I think on the topic, you know, still, hopefully, Mickey, you're finding this valuable. <laughs> hopefully this isn't just our personal stories and you don't see a way to apply it, hopefully. Yep. But I think one of the issues with dealing with motivation and you talk about the carrot and the stick, I was thinking about this recently at my job, actually, we're talking about motivation because, you know, what the guys do who, at the company that I work for, they sell, right? And yep. Like I don't do any selling. I make content for them, but we're talking about motivation and what drives people. And I was sort of explaining, you know, putting it into operant conditioning terms. And I think one of the issues is, you know, negative reinforcement, you can drive a behavior, you can make it happen, mm. but positive reinforcement can only pay you for something that you already did do and yep. then make it more likely for you to do it again. And I think one of the issues certainly is, and this is a key robber of motivation, is that if you set your goal as what you intend to find reinforcing too far ahead, that and, and there, there isn't enough sort of negative reinforcement for you to drive you forward to do it. You never achieve it. You never achieve that win, what you find reinforcing, the thing that makes you want to continue doing and and do again. Mm. If you set the goal of that, you're you're going for the jackpot and you don't achieve it, then it's really easy to crush your own motivation. I think that's one of the problems, right? And I think so when we're talking carrot and the stick, yeah, the stick's always there because there has to be like a consequence for not achieving. Yep. But to keep it nipo-po and to keep that positive outcome, you have to think of like your first outcome as something that's quite achievable and consider that yourself as reinforcing, mm. right? It's interesting to me like how powerful negative reinforcement can be in that way. Like when you want to keep yourself motivated, there's really dark ways of going into it. And I was talking about this yesterday. When I did my selection course, right, it's fucking hard. Like it's hard to do. Mm. And I was 20 years old. Now I'm nearly 40, I'm 39, right? So that's nearly 20 years ago that I did it. And when I meet a 20 year old, I'm so disrespectful. I almost laugh in their face about how little they know of the world. Mm. (laughs) But you don't know that when you're 20. No, fuck no, you have no idea. You think you're right at the peak of Dunning-Kruger, right? at that Oh, mate. And Mm. so, but so I meet a 20 year old and I'm like, oh my God, you're so young. You've got it all ahead of you. Like you have so many opportunities. There's so many things you could do. And I know there's probably 60 year olds or probably you at 50 over there sitting looking at me, laughing at me, thinking <laughs> I know anything at 39, right? I get it. I'm not ignorant to that. But I think of 
you know, a 20 year old that I meet and I think about like, oh, you have no idea. Like you just have no idea what the world is and you'll learn and you're not even a finished human. Like you're not even ready to take out of the oven yet. Right. Like you're not. Finished. Yeah. Your brain still hasn't fully developed. Yeah. You're yeah. still growing. Like you mm. might be physically the size you're going to be, but you are not done growing. Like you have not reached the potential of what you're going to be. Yeah. Now I think about that. I was fucking trying out for special forces at 20 years old. Mm. I was like, I'm so good. <laughs> I'm so good at doing this army thing that I've been doing for six months at that point. Right. Like, cause I did the direct entry scheme. I was on the pilot direct entry scheme where I was never in the regular army, just went straight to special forces. Yep. And, but we still have to do selection just like everyone else at 20 years old, knowing fucking nothing of the world. Mm. And it was hard, right? And let me tell you, it was really hard for me because I was thinking about, I want that Green Beret at the end of this, right? And it was hard because like, you know, I joined the army and like, it's physically hard, everything you do. And I had left this life behind and I'm thinking, I am chasing that Green Beret. That's what I'm chasing. That's carrot. That's my carrot. Mm. But you don't get that. You don't get that beret at the end. Like you're not a commando when you finish selection. It's then like a year of training after that, that people, you know, you can fail many places along the way. People get injured, all kinds of stuff. But so about a third of the way into my selection course, I sat down and I, I really had this deep conversation with myself. And I thought, how much do I actually want that green beret? And I thought, I do, like, I do want it, but not like, enough to endure this shit. Mm. And I thought to myself, I could just quit. This is during the Navex. And what happens, the Navex is like the hardest part because it, it it's not physically that hard, but you're alone for- you Oh, know. that's when you do your isolation throughout the- Yeah, the so you're just, yeah, you're just out wandering around. They give you a checkpoint, you go to it, you write down a code, mm. you radio that in, they give you another one, you go to another one, right? And you might see a person once or twice a day, right? And they're not nice to you. They're the staff. They just fuck you around. They give you no comfort, right? So you're really alone by yourself. And I sat down and was like, you know, why am I doing this? Do I, I really want that green berry? That's my, and I didn't understand positive. I didn't understand conditioning. I didn't understand motivation. I had no training in like operant conditioning, that kind of stuff. I didn't know it. And I'm thinking to myself, yes, I really want that, but not enough to go through this bullshit. Like this is some of the hardest shit I've ever endured in my life. And I'm thinking, you know, hardest in my life, my life's 20 years of fucking of, of easy street, right? Yep. Like the hardest thing I've done before that is like played a, a rough game of football, right? Yep. Like it, You've had your parents wiping your ass right <laughs> up to that point. <laughs> yeah. Like I didn't even have any financial responsibilities. You know? like I, like, anyway, so I'm sitting there, I'm thinking this is so hard. And then I realized, okay, I was like, okay, I'm going to withdraw, right? I'm going to pull off the course. Mm. And then I, I realized I was like, I am not prepared to tell people that I did that. Right. And I realized in that moment, I was like, there is no way I'm pulling off this course mm. because I am not like here to these people. I don't care. All right. I can, I'll never see these people again. But I told my family, I told my old job, I was an apprentice stonemason. I was like, fuck you guys. I'm out of here. I'm going to join the army. I'm going to special forces. I assume it's easier. See you later. Right. <laughs> and the idea of going back to all those people and saying I didn't make it was unacceptable to mm. me. Like it was 100%. I was like, I, nothing, nothing they do to me here will be worse than me having to do that. And I sat down and I thought that through and I stood up and it was all easy after that. The next, like that was a third of the way into it. The remaining two thirds of it was 
like totally easy because I was, I realized I was like, nothing motivates me more than that. Mm. And it wasn't about passing that became the like icing on the cake. It was the negative reinforcement that drove me. I was like, no, I am 100% not doing that. Mm. Like I am, I, I understand the pressure that's chasing me and it is not fucking catching me no matter what. That is the only unacceptable outcome of this is me quitting. And whether I pass that will be nice, but I'm fucking not quitting. And when I accepted that, like I, I sat down and had this long thought with myself. It was easy after that. Like, cause it never, it was never on the table that I could quit. It was only like, okay, now we do this. Now this is hard. Jeez, my body's sore. Jeez, I haven't slept in days. Everything is difficult, but quitting was off the table. There was no way that was ever going to happen. And it's interesting when you think about motivation in that way, right? Mm. In that the carrot was too far away. I couldn't, I couldn't see it. It was too far. And the goal I had set for myself was too far. But the the, but the cons- stick was close. The stick was fucking close. Yeah. And, and, and chasing me nonstop. Yeah. But once I realized, I was like, no, I know how to avoid that. I'm just not quitting. Mm. If I die, I was prepared to die on the course. I was like, there's nothing they can do to me here that will make me quit because mm. I'm not turning up and telling people that I quit. I was See, prepared to go that far. It's interesting that concept where you're talking about, you know, like the concept that even though the carrot was far away, one was absent, but the other was very close. Totally. It's interesting how motivation can change from that. Yeah. And so I think when you're dealing in personal motivation and to achieve or to avoid, I think that the reinforcers need to be close together, certainly in the start. And when we, it's exactly what we talk about when we talk about training dogs, when you're teaching behaviors, you got to break it down into small increments, Mm -hmm. right? Whether you're using positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement, it doesn't really matter. You got to like, it's success by approximation, right? Like it's little bit, little bit, little bit. Paint by numbers. Yeah. Mm. And when you set a goal too far and that's a positive reinforcement goal, that's too hard to achieve. You're not getting the dopamine hits along the way that are going to continue to force you to continue doing it. Right. And if you don't have some kind of stick that is also pushing you along, then it can be really easy to find yourself without motivation. Yeah. And I think that there's danger in that stick too, right? Like, don't get me wrong. Like there's danger in that and setting something that is unavoidable and things like that. There's problems to that. It's not like that. It's called being in excess. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Not the band. The concept of being in excess is that you can be in excess of too much of a good thing and too much of a bad thing. And as you said before, you know, like the pressure of the stick can be too excessive Mm -hmm. and that can drive you down. Or let's say, for example, while it's not being in excess when – there is no vision of the carrot anymore. Like when that is infinitely in the distance somewhere and you just realize, I just don't think I've got the power or the strength to get there anymore. And you realize you've got not many rocks to hop onto to leapfrog your way there anymore. You just don't realize that, fuck, I can achieve this until you have that epiphany. Yeah. I guess it brings me back to that point where we were talking about before is that saying, no matter where you go in life, there you are. Mm. Sometimes I think you've really got to sit down and soul search to dig through it to say, do I really want this? You know, like I've had discussions with people like this where they're talking about ending their career. And I said, I think what you need to do is go home and write down the good things and the bad things. And you need to look at that list at the end of the day. And then you need to decide, have I got enough good things to keep me going? And if I'm looking at the bad things, like if, if that's starting to completely overwhelm where I am, there you are. You know, you're at, you're at a precipice of making a a, a different choice. So Minka Vandenberg, yeah, (laughs) there's a lot of personal stories and I don't know if any of them are applicable to you, but I think the takeaway from me is for motivation is I think sometimes, especially in the dog industry, but it can happen absolutely everywhere is that you can have your motivation trampled 
by thinking of yourself as something that you no longer want to be. And if that's what's happened to you, I think the way out of that from my personal experience is I don't think of myself as a dog trainer. I don't think of myself as a person that works in media. I don't think of myself as a father. I don't think of myself as any of those things. I think of myself as a person who does the things that he enjoys and I am always motivated to do the things that I enjoy. That's it. And of course you worry about other people and how they perceive you. But if you just continue doing the things that you enjoy, it, it won't, it won't derail you from your motivation and your happiness. It's like we're life coaches or something. Maybe we are. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe because listen to this going, you've missed the mark. Totally. You (laughs) fucking idiots. Wasted my time. Can't believe someone texted this to me and said, Hey, they talked about your question and it was such a load of hot shit. (laughs) Oh dear. All right. How long have we been going? Should we go train some dogs? Yes. Yeah, we've been going uh well and truly over the hour. All right. Hey, that's it. Yep. For another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, get out of your fucking car, scream at the top of your lungs. What if you're not in a car? What if you're on a motorcycle? You could do it there. You just lift your helmet up. Just lift the visor. Or you can put the kickstand out, stand up on your seat. Ooh, yeah. yeah. You can look very daredevilish. If you're on a motorcycle, you better be using one of those rowdy hound absolutely boxes yeah. with your dog on there. Yeah, George would just never forgive us if we didn't put a little plug in there. Yeah, well, you should. I love his little Instagram. I like seeing dogs doing that shit. It's one of my favourite things with the, to watch dogs with the on doggles on. Like, yeah, yeah, he's got the, the dog looking over their shoulder in the back of the rowdy hound dog kennel. It's the best. I can't believe that you and I were in the car with him going from Denver Airport to Colorado. And he was telling us and selling this concept to us. Yeah. And you and I going, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, great idea, George. (laughs) We're just thinking, oh, this is just another young kid who's talking up a storm and never get things done. But the one thing I love about George is he's had the the stick chasing him for a large part of his life. Yeah. He's a really interesting character, you know, like the things that he's endured. I mean, I know he's talked about him on the show before. He's had a pretty rough start to life. Yeah. And that's why I like him so much because he's a good looking young kid. He's had a really hard start to life, but he's got really good morals. Mm. When you actually sit down and talk to him, he's not a fucking idiot. No, no, You know, in any way, shape or form. I really appreciate George. Yeah. He's a good, good dude. Support the people that support us. Get on the, at the minimum, get on the Instagram and look up Rowdy Hound. Yeah. Because even if you don't own a motorcycle, even if you cannot, like me, even if you cannot be a purchaser of his product, you'll enjoy, like I do, watching dogs on motorbikes. Absolutely. I think I took a photo of it. I think I put it in the discussion group many years ago. I was at Bronte Beach and I'm watching this guy walking along with his cavoodle and it was a, you know, like a mid-sized kind of cavoodle, yep. not one of the tiny ones. He's walking along with it. He stops, picks it up, puts it in his backpack. The dog like totally nerves are still actually yep. puts it in his backpack, zips up the backpack. So only the dog's head is hanging out of it and he gets on his little moped and off he rides. Yep. <laughs> and it's like, that is the most Eastern suburbs thing Isn't I've it? ever seen in my whole <laughs> life. And I love it. It yep. was amazing. I'm I wish that I had have a little puppuccino or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that I had a dog that would do that with me. Yep. All right, so you've told everyone you know about the show. The other mm-hmm. thing you could do is support the show. You can do that via Patreon. Mm-hmm. I was live in there just this morning. Had a wonderful time answering people's questions. Yeah, I saw all the comments in Patreon popping up and yep. people really enjoying 
yep. uh, the interaction and the feedback. It's really good. You know, it's one of the cool things in there is like, you know, the lives, it's kind of the same people that are there and the same people that ask questions and lots of people watch it, but there's only, you know, I guess it takes a certain type of person that wants to interact within that. Mm. And what's cool is like month to month, people ask questions and I give my answers. And these are people I've never offered very often. They're people I've never met. I don't know their dogs beyond the like one liner that they give me. Mm. And then the next month they're like, yep, did that, making progress. Here's the next, next? here's yeah. the next thing. So that's really cool. I enjoy that. And so you can come along for the ride on that. You can watch them live with me um, or you can, you know, watch the recordings at any time. You can go back and check those out. I've recorded the whole seminar here in Sydney. I've been cutting bits and pieces of that up and putting it onto TikTok because I'm going to give that a go just because I'm trying to learn TikTok as well as Instagram. And I'm going to start putting big chunks of that into Patreon very soon as well. Very cool. Uh, once I sort of edit it up a little bit. So that's happening into Patreon. You can check that out. Uh, the other way to support the show is Teespring or Spring. Spring. Large demand for water bottles, Glenn. Absolutely. I saw that. Yeah, Melanie Benware and Co. You know, I think, who else was it? Maybe Karen Swan. There was there um, was demand for yeah, water bottles. Yeah, there's demand. Like I woke up one morning and all of a sudden I'm I'm getting PMs going, hey, you need to see this red. Yeah. And it's a bunch of people saying water bottles. So yep. they're coming. Yeah. Quickly, before we move on from that, huge amount of appreciation from people all around the world who are giving me thumbs up and talking about how just that phrase, no more, one more time, has completely changed their life. Yeah, right. Like literally from every corner of the globe, randomly every now and then I'll get somebody send me a message or something going, dude, that's a life changer. Like that really fixed a big fuck up that I've been having. Mm. I openly admit it's something that Boyd and I came up with, so I'm not going to say it's entirely mine, but it's great that it's helping people. It's nice to know that things that helped us with problem clients are helping people with their training concepts because I still think about it to this day. You've got to practice what you preach sometimes. And there are days where, I've got this little roddy puppy Mando at the moment and there's days where I want to push him to do things and I realise he's not a male. I can't raise him like a male. He's not a male, Mm. you know. So no more, one more time for him. I've got to stop. Mm. I've got to see where the limitation and the roof is coming and I've got to think, yep, I've got to practice the advice that I pass on to other people and do that as well. So I'm just acknowledging you guys and I appreciate that you've been showing appreciation to it. So lots of love, lots of appreciation. Wonderful. Yes. All right. Feel good. If you want to get in contact with us, the very best way to do that is to jump into our discussion group on Facebook. Yep. That is a wonderful place. There's Mm. so much free information people give out in there. It's outrageous how much answers people give to questions. You can group source some really good dog training info. Yep. Full Um, of wonderful, good-hearted people. If you've got a good meme, put it in there. Yep. The only thing you can't do in there is blind post. We'll not allow that shit straight away. If you just post something without some sort of wordage, it's out. Yep. And you can shoot us an email. We are info at thecanineparadigm.com. Goodbye.